welcome to the Vine Podcast. This is Warren, and on today's episode, I am privileged to be joined by not one, but two Dr. Martins. And so the first of those is a, a normal, a recognized voice and presence on our podcast, Jason Martin. Hello, Jason. Good morning. It's good to, good to be here again. It is, it is. And so Jason, I'm going to let you introduce our other uh, guest, Dr. Martin, for today. Yeah, so we're, we're glad to have Dr. Dale Martin uh, on the podcast today. Uh, Dale Martin has been a New Testament scholar for many years and most recently retired as the Woolsey Professor of Religious Studies at Yale University in 2018. Uh, he's the author of many books, on, uh, mostly on the New Testament, most recently uh, Biblical Truths, The Meaning of Scripture in the 21st Century. Uh, he also happens to be my father's younger brother, uh, so D Dale Martin is my uncle. Uh, he now is retired and living in Galveston, Texas with his two dogs and the occasional visits from nieces and nephews. So, hi Dale. Thanks for coming on. Welcome. Yeah, Dale, it's it's a it's a privilege for us to to be able to to have some time with you on on our little podcast here. And uh, I was telling Dale before that I've I've listened to him on other podcasts. I've, I've seen you in in other videos that you've done. Watched some of your Yale Open courses, which is a great resource for anyone who's kind of looking for more study. The Yale Open courses is a a great resource, and and Dale has a a, a course that he did as as part of that, and then of course has written several books as well. And so before we get into the other stuff, Dale, I, uh, Jason mentioned there that you're retired in, in Galveston now. So what, what does retirement life look like for you there in Galveston? Well, I, I thought it would mean a lot more just writing of regular books that I had always done. And I did that for about a year. I finished up some projects and some articles and, you know, manuscripts that I had, been pro that I had promised. But after about the first year of that, I kind of settled down into watching TV, reading books. I read a lot of books, uh, both uh, some fiction uh, novels and short stories. And then I read a lot of um, stuff like history and biography and autobiography and those kinds of things. Um, so I spend a lot of my time just hanging around the house. Um, I, I had a pool built in my backyard uh, recently so it's nice and cool back there. And I just hang out by the pool reading books most of the time. That's, that sounds like a good, a good way to spend retirement. <laughs> yeah. That works. Do you have, a, do you have favorite fiction uh, authors that you read? Oh, it's a cliche, I'm afraid. Um, I think the best uh, writer of all time is Flannery O'Connor. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I'm, I can't, yeah, I, I wasn't ever that crazy about her novels, but her novels seem to me mainly put together pieces of her short stories, just, you know, one short story after another to string together to make a novel. And I believe in almost all cases, the short stories were written first and they really do stand on their own. Um, so Flannery O'Connor's completed stories, complete stories is, you know, by my bedside and it's besides the Bible, it's about the closest thing to God's truth. I know. 
<laughs> That's good. Well, there are there are any any number of topics that that we could could talk to you about and spend some time with, but uh, I've been wanting to to have some episodes kind of connected to questions like how do we read the Bible? What is the Bible? Uh, how do we sometimes misread the Bible because of kind of cultural biases or maybe other biases or how do we struggle kind of with modern sensibilities and modern lenses to, to read and, and interpret well this ancient text that we have? And, and so I think there's, there's a number of different, even just kind of within that, directions to go. And I think as, as I was kind of listening to you talk about the, the material and biblical truths in other places, and as I've begun reading the book for myself, it seems like there's some material that you kind of worked on leading up to that book and that's included in that book that I thought could, could fit into that general kind of area of, of exploration. And so that's some of what I kind of want to focus on today and, and we'll see what other directions that may, that may kind of lead us in. Uh, but to begin, can you kind of give, give people maybe a brief overview and uh, of, of the premise of biblical truths and kind of the content of it, the premise of it and, uh, give people kind of an introduction to, to the material there. Yeah, I had come to question myself. Um, I found myself continuing to go to church and standing up and saying the Nicene Creed. And of course, I knew all along that it, that stuff was not true historically or, you know, what we might say materiality or, but really historically is what we mean. It can, you know, the, the resurrection of Jesus can't be demonstrated by the tools of modern historiography. It's just, they can't. So you really recognize that what we call history is a result of disciplinary practices uh, that are taught with PhD programs and then engorged and lived into in postdoctorates and, uh, and they, became, they become second nature. So that historical study of, you know, any kind of religious tradition is going to uh, be threatening to some people. Uh, but I think that a lot of people don't find it so threatening because we don't see these texts as being like science textbooks. Mm -hmm. um, they're not, you know, the 1987 manual for how to fix a VW. That's not what scripture is supposed to be, even though that's the way people talk about scripture. Yeah. You know, this is the, you know, this is the owner's manual for your body. Well, then whoever wrote it should be sued. Um, it's, doesn't read like a de decent owner's manual. <laughs> There's a lot of missing pieces if it's an owner's manual. And way too much material too. That's the other thing, you know, way too many sexual scenes than we really need, you know what I mean? <laughs> so. <laughs> um, and so, but in, in your professional career, you, you were kind of, you were a historian kind of by, by profession and, and trade, right? Studying new, mainly New Testament history. Is that right? Yes. And so, so it sounds like that you kind of came to a point where you're thinking, okay, so as I explore these, these texts historically and also try to engage them kind of in theologically kind of currently, something isn't kind of matching up here. 
And so I just want to, I want to kind of acknowledge and kind of throw something out before we kind of continue with some other stuff. Cause I think, you know, I, I'm sure we've got some of our listeners who, when they hear something like scripture kind of, there's, there are parts of scripture that don't hold up to historical criticism, or there are parts that, that aren't provable kind of historically. I think for some that may be challenging still to say, wait a minute, you, well, what are you, are you, because maybe for some there, they, there isn't the difference so much between truth and history. You know what I mean? Um, so, so can you kind of talk through that a little bit about what do you, what do you kind of mean when you say that there are parts of the new Testament that aren't necessarily historically accurate? Um, and what does that mean for you? And, and can you kind of expound on that for a minute? Okay. Let's just take a couple of uh, examples. Um, take the book of Matthew in the first few chapters and take the book of Luke in the first few chapters and just sit down with the yellow pad, pencil, paper and put Matthew on one side and Luke on the other side and see if you can match their chronologies to where they make sense harmonized into one another. Mm -hmm. They don't. Yeah. They contradict each other absolutely and directly. You know, unless you're that kind of modernist, which means a fundamentalist, you know, the world is just more complicated than that. You know it, and we know it, I know it. And there may not have been one Adam and one Eve, and they may not have been naked, and there may not have been a talking snake uh, talking about a forbidden fruit. Maybe that didn't ever really happen, and how would we know if it did? But does that matter? My position is... Well, it matters historically. You don't want to make mm. stupid historical statements like, well, when Adam met Eve, um, he couldn't t bring his eyes upward to her face. You know, you just, you know, you, you just don't make statements like that and claim they're historically accurate. So just get over it. Just take the story of Adam and Eve as a wonderful myth as it is about, you know, created innocence, lost innocence, human responsibility, human blame, human guilt-making, and hopefully recovery. Yeah, and so I think from, from what you're saying then, to, to, to question some of those things and to say that it's not necessarily historically prove, provable or accurate doesn't take away from the truth of what we read in scripture and from the message that it has for us and, and the relevance that it still has for, for our lives, for our culture, for our churches today. Is that, is that accurate? Yes. And that's where the difference is between a historical examination and a theological examination. The theological examination doesn't have to deny the historical truths that have been revealed and built by the historical analysis. But the theological interpretation doesn't have to stop there. That's the main thing. And it should go ahead and say, what does this mean for us right now in God's communication and communion with us? Mm. Um, reading the Bible is always a matter of getting over history, of reading Psalm 1, as if, it, as if it really is said by me, mm. complaining to God. Um, 
So I want to think for a minute then, kind of since you're, you kind of have, have touched on some of this, I, I feel like as we think about sort of, so how do we, how do we envision scripture? Um, did you mention it's not, it's not like a, an owner's manual, uh, things like that are not, not necessarily the best ways to, to think about scripture, perhaps. You know, I've heard, um, you know, I once heard Walter Brueggemann describe scripture as a script that is meant to be played out and, and performed by each, each generation, each church, each individual, whatever it may be. Uh, Jason and I and, and one of our other ministers here did a recent episode where we talked about Anna Carter Florence, who has a theater background and thinks, I think, in some similar imagery uh, about scripture. And I know that you've talked about scripture as the, the imagery of scripture being kind of like an art museum or a cathedral. Uh, can you talk about those images as it relates to scripture and, and, and why you think it's helpful to, to think of scripture with, with that type of imagery? Yeah, the main inspiration for my thinking about that was that we needed to get rid of uh, textual uh, and maybe even strictly linguistic models of texts for the Bible and come up with something else. And, um, and what really struck me was that sometimes when the Bible seems the most meaningful to me is when I'm not trying to anchor down any of its meanings. I'm just bouncing from one story to another from one saying to another, from one sermon to another. And I'm bouncing around as if in space. So what I wanted to do was see if we could come up with spatial uh, images for what scripture is. So instead of sitting down with a book in linear form, you actually walk through some trees and enter into a space of stories and sayings and stuff. Yeah, that's good. And, and so to, to think of it then as an, as an art museum helps us to kind of envision, envision it in that way, but also in a way that can, that can be kind of um, interpreted by each individual visitor to the space, we might say, that for each person that encounters it, I may see something different in the art than, than you see. Um, and, and it well, sounds to me like that's... that's... Go ahead. That's one of the main things I want to say is that, um, you know, there's not a right way to interpret things. And it's precisely the multiplicity of interpretation um, that proves the miracle of the human brain and its creation of art. And I'm not an essentialist. I don't want to assume that there is such a thing called art with a capital A and we all know what it is and we all recognize it when we see it. And, there's that essence of art and either something has it or doesn't have it. Well, I don't believe in all that, but I do believe uh, that the things we take to be art, we humans, not only do we make the artistic product, but then we turn it into art by calling it art mm. and not just a bucket. <laughs> um, and so we create art in all ways, physically and materially and, communally and spiritually. Um, so it's the human making of art that I find the most astounding, both in when it's made physically, but when it's interpreted. And so uh, that necessarily means that um, interpretation may be wild and free. I don't think from my view, that means it 
need not stand up to ethical qualities. I don't think there's anything freedom loving uh, in publishing more, you know, uh, as as if it were art, more, uh, you know, Nazi criminals um, and crimes. Uh, yeah, let them be there, let them know, but let's just make sure we're not celebrating them or ennobling them in any way. But but I'm generally for free expression, I suppose, except when I believe hate is involved. <laughs> That's good. That's a good rule. <laughs> um, and so that, like that, one of the things that makes me wonder about and is that, so as, as you move towards kind of more, I think you said wild and free interpretation, did you, do you still have this kind of thought that there are these kind of core elements that I need to be anchored to uh, as far as theology goes, as far as my faith goes, or or was everything kind of open for for interpretation and and um, expression at that point, or did you kind of have some anchors that you thought I've I've got to be tied to this, and and then all this other area is kind of wild and free. I never think about it in the terms of I've got to be tied to this. Now, what I do often recognize is just say, I am tied to this. Mm. I didn't do it. I didn't consciously make some decision to yeah. be tied to this. That's I just keep waking up and finding myself tied to it. So the fact that I want to go to church on Sunday, I want to eat the physical Jesus and Jesus's blood. I want, I want to uh, stand up and say the Nicene Creed and mean it. Mm. And my life for the last, you know, uh, years of trying to write that book, Biblical Truths, was really just trying to explain mostly to myself, but also to some friends, uh, how I combined those two worlds of the historical and the skeptical and the minimalist and the spiritual and the infinite and the multifarious. Well, and, and so, so coming back to the book, then, I, it seems like a lot of kind of what, uh, what you're trying to kind of maybe push against in the book, and you can tell me if this is kind of an accurate reading of it, is that it does seem that kind of in modern theology, I think you talk about it as having a theology of the New Testament, because New Testament is kind of your area of expertise. So that's kind of what you deal with in, in the book and the content of it. And you talk about how a lot of theologies of the New Testament rely on historical criticism first and kind of establishing the context of, of the scripture, what the author meant, uh, going back and doing some historical work, and then bringing that forward and saying, here's, here's what it meant, here's what the author was getting at, and now here's how we apply that to, to a modern Christian context. Um, is, is that kind of an accurate summation of that? Because, and then you're saying there, there, are, there are actually some issues when we do that. Is that, is that what you're kind of proposing in the book? Yeah. And uh, I think what I'm just trying to do with the book is to get at least some people, some sort of thinking Christians, or maybe thinking agnostics, to at least uh, entertain the idea of the sensibility of belief. Not the trueness of belief, but the sensibility of it. That's different. And I think that's all we can ask. Yeah. So what do you mean by that? Do, 
expand on the sensibility of belief a little, a little more. The fact that belief makes sense. <laughs> it, it makes sense that you believe for some reason. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a very unsatisfying answer for a long time. <laughs> something, make, something makes sense just because it makes sense. Well, I think the struggle kind of for like from a modern perspective, right? It's that, well, it makes sense because I can establish the, hor the, the historical accuracy of it. But you're saying that that sensibility of belief can and maybe should actually come from someplace else? Well, from my life, I just say that they, they, reside, they reside alongside each other. Uh, and I don't feel a conflict uh, when I'm, you know, it's like playing actors in different plays. Um, you know, when are you this actor and when are you this other actor? I mean, when are you this character and when are you this other character? And, you know, if you can't pull that off in your brain and you'll never be an actor. And I'm not saying being human is all just acting, but it is learning to behave. And one of the things about learning to behave is learning to think. And we have, we just have to learn to think in different ways uh, in a society in which um, people don't want to apply the terms of science to art. Um, or people want to say that science isn't rational, it's just aesthetically pleasing, which is a defensible position. Um, and you know, I, I told Jason, so I, I, started, I started reading your book, like I said, after, after we kind of set up this, this conversation, I started reading your book, and then I, I sent Jason a text because I said the thing that, that Dale is pushing against in the introduction of this book is exactly the format that I'm preparing my sermon for Sunday. It's, <laughs> it's going back and saying, okay, here's what people are saying. Here's what scholars, commentators say about the context. Here's what Paul's dealing with. And, and so here's what we can take from that. And I was like, it's this, this is this is directly what he's speaking speaking against in the book, and so it did. I tried to kind yeah, of yeah, that's pretty boring. Yeah, <laughs> that may explain why people keep falling asleep. Um, but <laughs> it's not not every week, not every week. <laughs> <laughs> but but it it was challenging. What is the to passage me. for? What is the passage for this Sunday? Well, I'll get to that in a minute. I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, for, okay. for, the, for the one that I was speaking of then, it was from Colossians 2, I believe. Um, and so I actually have a question kind of about Colossians that I'll come back to at, at the end. Um, but, but so you, you, you mentioned in the book, you say modern, this is, this is kind of how you, you said this is the theme of your book in the introduction. Modern theologies of the New Testament were failures from a Christian point of view precisely because they ended up offering the precisely because what they ended up offering was bad history, bad theology, or both. And, 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 and you talk, you talk in there about how there, there were a couple of theologians that you referenced who came to what you kind of described as, as, as perhaps good theology, but that it was based on, on bad history. And how that's part of the struggle for us is as we look back, we tend to apply modern sensibilities, modern lenses. Uh, we, we can't very accurately recreate history. Uh, in addition to what you were saying that maybe some of it, you know, doesn't even hold up to kind of modern historical 
criticism. And, and so this question may be sort of obvious, but what, what are the particular dangers that you see in, in making good theology out of bad history? Let's say the very, there were very popular moves in New Testament studies and theology to sort of redeem Paul and redeem Jesus from any possible apprehension of misogyny or hierarchy mm-hmm. or something like that. And so you did have, uh, you know, a series of books and articles that are written to try to show that even when Jesus was saying, don't get divorced, uh, div- forbidding divorce in the gospel of Mark or the gospel of Matthew, uh, you know, they're trying to say, oh, well, this was liberating for women because divorce so often put women outside of any social structure. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not really accurate. I mean, they didn't, the ancient world didn't forbid divorce in order to liberate women. Let's just get over that. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's a nice thought. It's a nice theological goal. Mm. And if you want to interpret the Bible to do that, it's easy to do so. There are lots of passages in the Bible that can be read uh, for women's liberation and women's nobility. Uh, you just, you know, choose those passages and you read them and you read and you interpret them properly. That's what theological education means. Um, you know, I was telling someone, uh, one of our other elders and I were talking about just kind of some of this the other day. And I told him that when, when I was a teenager, it seemed like there was this kind of popular, this popular thought that went around. Cause I heard it at a couple of like youth rallies and things like that camps when I was a teenager that when people would talk about this idea, you know, when Jesus uses the imagery of a camel going through the eye of the needle, I remember <laughs> hearing that, you know, there's this gate outside of Jerusalem that, that was called the eye of the needle and you could get a camel through it, but it was, it was difficult and it looked awkward. And, and then, you know, so I just kind of, as a teenager, you know, if you hear a minister say something in a, you know, in a sermon, you're just going to kind of take it as fact. And then, and then, you know, as I got older and got into more, you know, uh, study and training, it's like, wait, this, this actually has no historical uh, evidence at all. And, and it's, it does feel like we do that sometimes. We, we want to look backward and, and build a history that, that fits our theology, which is, is backwards <laughs> by its very essence, right? Yeah. But, you know, that, that's what's meant by... In my book, by modernity, that's that's the modern. That's the modern of trying to fix everything on a foundational, epistemological foundational, uh, you know, s- certainty of either science or nature or text, textuality, biblicality, you know, sacrality. Dale, it sounds like you're kind of part of what you're proposing to me. Sounds like that. If, if I'm someone living today who's never, I have no connection to, to scripture, don't know anything about God, Jesus, the Bible, church, whatever, that, that if, I, if I pick up a Bible and let's just for now just take the New Testament, if I start reading in Matthew and read on, I don't know anything about ancient Jerusalem, I can't speak Greek, all I've got is this English text. Um, 
I, I can develop good and meaningful theology based on my, what I am able to interpret from that text um, and, and kind of live it out from there. Would you say that's, that's true? No. <laughs> Why not? Well, that text, that text could not have formed you unless you had an absolute miracle of the Holy Spirit that was individual, that didn't just happen communally in the early church. As we all believe that the Holy Spirit led the early church into its truths. Uh, but we don't expect that to happen to, you know, one kind of baldy guy in an apartment building on a Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> Uh, so I, what I would say is that that text, unless you, it just couldn't get you to what we call Christianity today, to what we say is Orthodox Christianity that exists in thousands and thousands and thousands of churches all over the world in Eastern Orthodoxy, Western Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, Protestantism. It's amazing how many of them get up, eat bread, drink wine, or at least dip it in or something, and call that Jesus. And then how many of them will um, stand up and say the Nicene Creed? That's amazing. In this day and age, so you do think that our, our kind of good theology is tied to tradition then, would you say that? Yeah, it's tied to churches. Theology is the language of the church. Mm. It's not the language of scripture. So I, so I need to be connected to something and there's, there's a connection to a, a, there's a communal connection, there's a communal aspect of it, um, but but uh, but this idea of 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 it being necessary to establish the the historical accuracy of it first before we interpret it kind of going forward is is what you're pushing against not necessarily yeah i mean it's like it, it's like i go to i go to an episcopal church mm -hmm. there are all these saints on the walls that didn't occur in the bible yeah and half of them are probably not even historical if you really put the rigorous test down. The, but, you know, the thing about um, Christianity is it has to be communally formed. If mm -hmm. there's a good doctrine that people find offensive sometimes, but I think it says some important things true, which is there's no, there's no spirit outside the church. Um, if you receive the Holy Spirit, then you've done it some way with the mediation of God, of Christ's body, mm. which is the church. Mm. Maybe you didn't know it. Maybe there's no signs, but you couldn't get the spirit apart from the church. Uh, okay. So I want to, I want to spend a little bit of time. Uh, you mentioned that you, you asked what my text was for that Sunday. And so I've, we've, we've been in a, in a series on Colossians. And so we've been going through the letter of Colossians. And so I'm going to ask a question first here. And if you've got any just kind of random thoughts on Colossians or Paul, feel, feel free to throw them in. But so I'll ask this question that um, 
I, I recognize may go against some of what we've been talking about so far, because this is getting into a little bit of historical criticism. So I, I recognize that. But do you, as someone who studied the New Testament, do you see a connection between Colossians and, and Philemon? And do you see a, a, a connection there between those two letters? Oh, yeah, clearly. Okay. I think, I think the person who wrote Colossians, who was not Paul, but a later right. disciple of Paul. His writing style is way too different from Paul's letters. His theology is different from Paul's letters. His eschatology is different from Paul's letters. He's not Paul. Um, but Colossians, I believe, the author of Colossians did know Paul's letters mm -hmm. and probably knew Philemon. Mm -hmm. Because um, Philemon, I think, is one of the authentic letters of Paul. And if it survived, even though it's so short and inconsequential, I think it's definitely a Pauline letter. And maybe a later one, if he's actually in jail for the last time. But we just don't know that. He was in jail a lot. So, yeah, I think Colossians knows Philemon, or at least knows the situation of Philemon. And that's part of the ruse of the letter to set it up like that as a pseudepigraphy. Yeah. So, so do you, do you see, so if you, if you think they were written by different authors, because I, I know there's one thought that they're delivered maybe at the same time. So do you see them as not being delivered at the same time, but kind of addressing the same, the same people? Uh, no, I don't believe Colossians was written by Paul. Right. I do think Philemon was written by Paul. These are purely linguistic decisions mm -hmm. that you make based on the Greek of the manuscripts. Um, in other words, I don't sound like Shakespeare even when I try. <laughs> so not all Paul's disciples could sound like Paul even when they tried. And we believe that as with Shakespeare, so with Paul, we can sometimes tell the difference. Yeah. That's not haughtiness. It's just plain scholarship. But, so I think that Ephesians and Colossians supply a magnificent illustration of the conflicts of the early church just immediately after Paul's death. So we're talking very early maybe in the year 70 or 75 or 80. Um, and in Colossians and Ephesians, which Ephesians was written by a different disciple of Paul, not the same person who wrote Colossians, but he had Colossians sitting in front of him as he wrote. And he's not a very good thief. Because uh, <laughs> it's very, very obvious he's taking stuff out of Colossians and rewriting it in a bit of his own style. But he does have a different style than the writer of Colossians. So we think, at least I think that these two letters were both written in imitation of Paul, but by two different imitators of Paul, but maybe not too far apart from each other. You know, today in today's society, I think we would see something like that, like writing something and put something else's name on it as unethical and and I think suggesting that to some people suggests, well, then that means that the scripture is 
uh, invalid or is uh, is wrong in some way that I feel uncomfortable with. And I've kind of come to the to the idea that ultimately it doesn't matter who wrote it. <laughs> and like claiming Paul is like uh, it like today it, we might not say, well, I am Paul, but we might say, you know, I've studied under Paul, or I admire Paul, or I'm a follower of Paul. And we might put it that way, but I, I kind of get the sense that for the authors of those letters, that's essentially what they were doing. Is that fair to say? Not really. That's a very popular theory. Oh. Um, so I haven't studied that, so I didn't know it was a popular theory, but. That's a very popular theory. Um, and the basic idea of it is that people just in the ancient world didn't think about authorship in the same right. kinds of capitalist, uh, you know, way we think of them as ownership. They didn't have copyright. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, and you know, there's something to be said for that, but um, I think that Bart Ehrman's book on pseudepigraphy in the ancient world, it's a, like a huge book on all the different practices of pseudepigraphy. He entertains this idea and he says, you know, the problem is the ancients don't talk that way. When they find a document that somebody else has given up to a bookseller, sold to a bookseller with their name on it, but it's not a document they wrote, they get furious. They call the piece of literature not just another textual piece of literature. They call it a bastard, notos in Greek. And so uh, a a piece of writing that's put up under a false name, a pseudepigrapha, uh, was considered just as awful and malignant in the ancient world as it is in the modern world. Mm. It's just, we kind of wonder, well, why would that be the case? But I think in the ancient world, it was more of a, not a matter of capitalism and ownership as it was of honor. Remember, we're dealing with a real honor, shame kind of culture in the Roman empire. And, you know, to have somebody stealing your words was more a matter of shame than it was uh, profit. How would the original readers of those epistles think about that fact? If, if it was a matter of honor, how would they have heard that? And what would they have thought? Well, we, we, we have this epistle and, or we have this letter in front of us and it claims to be written by Paul, but it wasn't. Well, how would they have understood or thought about that? Number one, I don't think their first inclination would be to say that it wasn't. I think they would just accept that it was by Paul mm. and go along quite merrily and happily with that conclusion. Yeah. Now, if, if someone had come and said, um, not only is this not by Paul, but I can prove that it's not by Paul. And I'm not sure how that person would prove this kind of thing mm -hmm. to an audience like we're imagining. But let's just say he did that. And if he convinced these people that that was true, they would reject it. They, they wouldn't make any kind of, you know, mealy mouth thing like, well, maybe it was by the Holy Spirit in the name <laughs> of Paul, but, you know, Paul didn't really write it, but it's still just as high of scripture. No, when they came to believe that things were pseudepigraphous, they kicked them out almost without fail, mm. unless they had some really, really, ingenious way of making sense of it, such as, for example, with, you know, the letters of Ignatius, um, 
they wanted the seven, the letters of Ignatius to be, especially the seven letters that are the oldest, to be authenticated. Super important. Well, the church got it done, you know, because you just do that. But um, most of the time when Christians, early Christians found out that something was a fake, they rejected it. And, and they would interpret a fake the same we might today, claiming to be written by someone when it wasn't. Yeah, if they believed that Paul had not written First mm -hmm. and 2 Timothy and Titus, they would not have accepted them as scripture. Mm -hmm. Well, go ahead. Yeah, that's the difference between me and them, you know, is that um, I don't have to be convinced that these documents were written by the people they claim to be written by or go back to, you know, establishable historical truths. I don't have to be convinced of any of that to still accept it as scripture, to be read on Sunday and preached from and meditated with. Well, so I think people may have more questions about this episode than maybe any other that we've done. So we may just have to have a, <laughs> a question and answer session just about this episode. But I want to think for a minute more about this Colossians Philemon thing, because this is, this is part of my sermon for Sunday. And so people will hear this episode after Sunday's sermon. So you'll be able to, this will be kind of a postscript for most people who hear this to see if I had ripped up my sermon and did something else. Um, but, but I know, so kind of the way that I have traditionally read Colossians and then with Philemon connected to it is this idea that if, if, they're, if they're written to the same people and it almost feels like Philemon becomes this kind of personal letter that's kind of, to, to me, almost this sense of the, the author of Colossians laying out some kind of theology in Colossians. And then Philemon becomes about this sort of exhortation from Paul to Philemon about, here's what I think this, this would look like in your life, Philemon. Um, for if the gospel of Jesus is going to impact your, your household, the way that you, your, your life, um, this is what you need to do. Um, so do, do you see a connection between them in that way? Like if they're written, but if they're, if they're written by different authors and written and delivered in different times, maybe that connection isn't as, as direct, but could still be sort of theologically or conceptually there. I think it definitely can be there theologically, conceptually, because, I mean, let's, let's face it, what we could call a cult of St. Paul developed very, very quickly after his death. His letters were collected in an amazingly short amount of time and valued long before there was anything approaching a New Testament. In fact, even the Old Testament, what he just called scripture, mm -hmm. was not carefully defined. Yeah, yeah. And nobody knew nobody knew exactly which books were supposed to be in and which were supposed to be out. Mm. Uh, so every list of the Septuagint you found could be different from the previous. You never knew. Yeah. So in that kind of context, Paul's letters are becoming really important. And I think out of proportion to his probable historical um impact on the founding of Christianity in the first century. Um, I kind of tend to think that his uh, being the apostle to the Gentiles, which is what he liked to be, uh, you know, 
wasn't so historically factually accurate that there were lots of others who were taking the word around and that's really where the major numerical spread and the demographic growth of Christianity happened in the East. I don't think it was with Paul. Mm. It was with tons of anonymous disciples. So how did Paul gain the kind of prominence that he did as opposed to one of those other anonymous disciples who, who probably also had written you know, letters of one kind or another. Why, why, how did Paul become that person? Uh, because of the letters. And you could, we can imagine that there were previous letter writers, but probably not nearly to the extent of Paul and mm -hmm. Barnabas. Um, we just don't have anything that survives. I mean, uh, we have letters of Peter and people like that, but they're all, pseudonymous and from many, many years later. So we just don't have anything contemporaneous to the year 50. Um, anyway, Paul, I think is important really because of the letters. And it wasn't just that he wrote them and not a lot of people were writing them, but he self-consciously, I think, was writing literary letters. He wasn't just, I mean, compare his letters to just your typical Oxyrhynchus papyrus letter. Just, you know, glance through the Oxyrhynchus papyrus and see the letters that were being sent around by people in Egypt and around Egypt. And Paul's letters don't look anything like that. They're clearly modeled on more philosophical morality type letters that you would get in a philosophy school. Mm. And yet the other thing is that he, he shows no philosophical influence. He's not, he's not he's not indoctrinated in philosophical doctrine. In fact, he makes philosophical problems all the time. Um, he believes God can get angry. You know, what Greek philosopher believed any God could get angry in this period? None. Uh, so although the Paul obviously didn't have a decent the, a philosophical education, he did have a good rhetorical education and he wants his letters to stand time. So I think he intentionally wrote them to be copied. I'm sure he had copies made for his own collection and he expected them to have copies made and then to send around the copies to other copies to other churches. And I think this is all quite self-conscious. So I don't think there's any wonder that a cult of St. Paul centered around lettered letter writing grew up after his death too, mm. which is why we got most of the New Testament. Well, you mentioned, you mentioned that the theology of Colossians is different from Paul's letters. And what do you mean by that? What, what's different theologically in Colossians? Um, the biggest difference, and this happens with Colossians and Ephesians, um, I'd have to actually look at the text to point out the exactness of it, but you can find this stuff in other places. Um, Paul has what we call a reserved eschatology. He always talks about the glorification that comes with Jesus as an end time phenomenon. We haven't experienced it yet. Mm -hmm. Also in modern Christianity, people will talk about baptism as death and resurrection. You go down in the water, especially in immersion, mm -hmm. you go down in the water, you come up out of the water. So you're buried and you're raised from the dead. Well, 
the gospel of Mark uh, and Paul have always tried to push uh, the coming of Jesus and all his glory into the future. It's not something that's happening now. We are not glorified yet. We are not raised yet. We are not saved yet. We will be saved. We will be raised. We will be glorified in the last day. So that's called a reserved eschatology. The true eschatological fulfillment will only be in the future, not our present. And then what grew up very, very quickly in Christianity, and it's really found in Acts, somewhat in Luke, and in Colossians and Ephesians, um, is realized eschatology. And it's the idea that now in the human life, we now, the Christian life we now live, we experience the fullness of God's blessings. There's nothing we lack. So God is, Christ has poured down Christ's absolute fullness on us uh, in the state of our baptism. Mm -hmm. So even before we die, even before we go to heaven, even before we meet Jesus, we have the fullness of blessing, at least in a spiritual state. Mm. So that's called realized eschatology. It's the idea that the Christ has arrived. Now, Paul's letters, his seven letters, all are very careful to put all of that stuff in the future. He does say we have been saved once in all of his seven letters. And it's kind of a slip of the pen. <laughs> and because he always says we will be saved. Hmm. So, um, but like that one time that says we have been saved, you know, I can, I think of it, he's just using common Christian language and maybe speaking metaphorically, but when you press Paul, I think if you could press him on, uh, are we justified already? He would say, yes, we're justified by faith. Are we made righteous yet? Well, we're made righteous in a legal sense. Are we saved yet? No, we're not saved. Are we glorified yet? No, we're not glorified. Are we resurrected yet? No, we're not resurrected. Those are the positions. And then what you get in Colossians and Ephesians is that the risen Christ is the church. The church is the risen Christ. Well, we have the church all around us. Mm -hmm. So Colossians immediately starts saying, you don't need anything else. I think what happens is Colossians was written to a kind of Pauline church in which somebody was coming along and saying, you just didn't understand Paul properly. Uh, he didn't mean that we're not saved yet at all. He just meant we're not saved completely. Um, and if you kind of come along with us, then you'll see that and join these other churches, we'll all be happy together because we all will be the true followers of Paul. And then the more conservative Pauline churches say, no, he never talked about the body of Jesus being present among us in, in fulfillment. That was all supposed to happen in the future when Jesus comes back. And you have the parousia. You know, it's just amazing that it didn't take long for that huge split in Christianity to happen. I think what happened is actually the reserved eschatologists 
who were truer to the historical Paul just died out. And they ended up being replaced by Catholics who said, we've got the church right here. Therefore we have Christ. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll get you out of here on this one then. So if I, if we're looking ahead to Philemon, then if you're reading Philemon theologically, what's the message in, in, in Dale's perspective, what's the message of Philemon for the church and for the Christian today? Uh, not to be too flip, but get free when you can get free. <laughs> get free right now, right now, right now. Don't wait for something else to come along. Get free. That's Philemon for the modern church. Free from whatever. Whatever's tying you down. Whatever's enslaving you. You don't have to get free from happiness. But, and, and it seems like it's also, though, connected to working towards the freedom of others, right? Yeah. Pursuing freedom for all. Yes, because other, other people are much better to play with when they're free. Yeah. They can't play very well when they're not free. Yeah, that's good. So do you think, so it sounds like you're saying you think Philemon was written by Paul first and then Colossians comes later? Yes, I think Colossians was written by a follower later after Paul's death, probably. Okay. Cause I know that, like I said, I know there's a thought um, that they were delivered at the same time from, from some scholars to say these are delivered at the same time, but you're saying from your perspective, that's not even feasible because they're written at different times by different people. Well, and I, I, I always go back to what I think is the, uh, the philologian, the historical philologian, I think the most reliable things that you argue about authorship were are the things you can, you know, use physical evidence the most to prove or to demonstrate. So, for example, um, if you can carbon date a letter to be that claims to be by Paul, and you can place it in a particular town in Israel or Palestine in the year 51, would that be valuable? I think so. And just on analogy with that, you know, when you get down stuff, we don't have any of the manuscripts of Colossians or Ephesians or any of Paul's letters that go back to the originals. So you really have to depend upon uh, writing style. But I believe we can tell things from writing style. I think that I think I could believe that Colossians and Ephesians were written by the same person on the basis of writing style, because I, so you read the first sentence of Colossians and unlike almost all the sentences that open Paul's letters, it goes on forever. It's like a whole paragraph right. and it's full of, you know, little, you know, phrases that are tucked into other phrases. It's all this Greek and Latin style of writing, which you were taught if you're an educated young man, you open a letter with this kind of sentence and that just advertises, I have an education. Mm. I have a right to be here. Mm. So that's the way Colossians starts out. Now Ephesians starts out the same way, but with a longer letter, even more elaborate. Well, okay. So this just goes to who copied whom. If you were an author and you've come across the elaborate letter that begins Colossians, 
would you rather use that because they the Ephesians writer practically copied some of it. Would you rather use that and expand it or use it and shorten it? Well, most of us think you'd rather use it and expand it to show off your own writing ability. It's exactly what the writer to the Ephesians has done. Now, why couldn't they be written by the same person? One little detail. You can tell this, I don't think, from the overall writing style because it's similar enough. It's all very elaborate, kind of high class writing style. But one of my former PhD students did a whole study on what counted as foul language in the ancient world. In other words, what does it mean when you cuss mm -hmm. in the ancient world? What words are not usable in pol polite society? What words are just vulgar? That is, they don't, they're not blasphemous. It's not, it's not a profane word in the sense. It's just because it doesn't refer to any God. It's just a vulgar word. But what's the difference between that and saying, you know, damn. Well, now that's blasphemous because you're invoking the divine to serve your needs. So, you know, there's a difference in bad words. Well, anyway, this one student of mine did a study of what counted as bad words in the ancient Greco-Roman world. And he came up with a, a debate in the ancient Greco-Roman world between different philosophical schools, some of which said, advised their philosophers to what they called uh, salt their language, mm. to season their language with salt. What they meant by that was be witty, even if it's a little off color at times. The main thing is a gentleman who's, you know, welcomed into polite society will have a quick tongue. He'll be witty. So using language seasoned with salt was this term for witty language. And it just so happens that the author to the Colossians advises his hearers to do that. He wants their language to be seasoned with salt. Hmm. Now you get to Ephesians. Ephesians has the whole same thing. He has a whole thing on what you do as your father, your mother, your slaves, you know, the household codes, how you behave, you know, good talk and bad talk. But he says you should never season your talk with salt. He, in using kind of some language that's not a, all that clear if you just in English translation, but we know what they mean in Greek. He's actually condemning people who have salty language. And he wants everybody to speak in a very, very plain <laughs> way <laughs> that can't be misinterpreted as being sexual or you know anything like that. So it's just interesting that you could you could I used to think that Ephesians and Colossians were written by the same person because they were similar enough. But this one difference on an absolute disagreement about what they believe about what kind of language you should use, that seems to me incontrovertible, incontrovertible evidence that they're written by two different people. And I, I think what happened is you can even see is where in the letter this, these statements come. And it seems to me clear that the writer to Ephesians was reading along in Colossians and he gets to that point and he just goes, well, that's wrong. <laughs> So he just changes it to the opposite. <laughs> well, and I think this is an example of where, it, you know, obviously you've got to have, you've got to have some theological training, some, um, 
some historical context and training to be able to pick some of those things out, but to pull it back to kind of where we started. Um, well, and you have to, and you have to have a lot of linguistic training about right. not only can you understand the languages, but can you understand how languages work when they work in different translations and in different contexts, you know, mm -hmm. you, you have to understand language and its yeah. function more than anything. Yeah. So, yeah, so there's several factors that go into it. And I think we're, to try to pull it back to kind of where we started from with the historical criticism aspect of it, to, to historically prove a lot of those things, who wrote it, who didn't, isn't necessarily necessary to apply it theologically for our lives today. And that there's other aspects like linguistic training that, that are helpful as well, that are all part of this kind of communal discernment about the theology of the text. Do you agree? Yeah, I, I can tell you a little trick that I've used. So um, what I believe is that we can approach scripture as a historical text in a historical time with its historical meaning. That's all fine and good. In fact, I think we ought to do it. It's good for us to do it. Mm -hmm. But that's not what it means to read this text of scripture. To read mm -hmm. this text of scripture is you open it up with a, with a hope that it will uh, change your mind or change your discipline disposition or cheer you up or settle you down or give you guidance or something, give you comfort. And, but that means that I, when I open up the Bible, I sit down with the Bible. And what I like to do is sometimes get an old fashioned leather covered Bible, not like the study Bibles that I use that are all in cardboard and, you know, cheaply manufactured. And I get a real old, you know, family Bible and it's almost always in the King James Version. So it's also not a version I'm used to reading because I'm used to reading modern versions. And I'm used to reading the Greek and translating myself. But the King James Version kind of takes me back to a time when this, this text was more seen as just scripture rather than history. Um, or at least history in the modern sense. Mm -hmm. And so what I like to do is just sit there and I read and I don't read it. Uh, with the eyes of thinking, okay, what's happening? What's true? What's not? I read it as poetry. You know, when you open up, a lot of people don't read poetry, unfortunately, but you know, you open up a book of poetry and you just start reading. You don't need to read the introduction. You know, you don't need to say, okay, what year was this poem written by this author? Uh, did the author, was the author influenced by any other writers? Was the author having a very bad day? You don't read it like that. You just read it for what the words do. Yeah. You know, you just let the words float up off the page mm -hmm. in any kind of poetry and you just let them be. And that's the way I like to read scripture is even if I'm reading something that I know has a historical background and historical incident, like say, you know, uh, uh, Jesus talking to the Pharisees in Jerusalem during the last week of his life. You know, I have no, I, I have no doubt that some of those arguments took place and that maybe some of the very same stories we have in Matthew were actually said by Jesus to the Pharisees that week, that week. Um, but it doesn't matter because I'm not going to read like that. I'm going to read it as if it's a story being told by a wise man to me right now. Mm. Well, I could, we could keep going on, on topics for a long time. And I could ask you, I, I think we could have a whole nother conversation about what that means for preaching, but others may not be as interested in that. And 
Um, but, you know, I, I've been thinking a couple of times, I've, I've heard uh, Brian Zahn, who's a pastor and an author, talk about preaching a lot. And, and he, he, lays, he likes to say that preaching is, is not journalism. Preaching is, is art. And, and it's about, um, and then it helps to see it that way for, for the preacher to go about making, uh, for, for the preacher to go about preaching. And so I, I sort of hear that in some of what you're saying as far as preaching and, and reading the text goes, that it, it, there needs to be some type of artistic uh, element to it. And very much so. And I, I know I can point my finger to the time in my life where that revolution happened. And all of a sudden I realized that good preaching was not just the conveyance of information. Mm -hmm. It was an artistic expression of life and mm -hmm. a call into life. And that happened when I was a grad student at Yale. And the man who was the chaplain at Battelle Chapel, which was the Yale University Chapel, Oh God, I can't remember his name right now. He was a Lutheran minister. He went on to become the president of the Lutheran seminary in Philadelphia right after that. I want to say something like Zondervan or something like that. It was a very biblical name. It was a, you know, it was a Zondervan. <laughs> <laughs> That's bad. Jason, <laughs> you're betraying yourself. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, I can't remember his name, but he, I really realized that he spent a lot of time crafting what really was a 12 minute sermon. He didn't preach for a long time, maybe 15 minutes. Uh, but every word of it was poetically crafted. And I just remember thinking, okay, if I've got to spend 15 minutes listening to some Boomba uh, talk from a pulpit, probably about something he knows nothing about, I think I'd rather just go to the aesthetic idea that a sermon is supposed to please you and, you know, give you joy and give you hope and give you life. And if, you, if it takes just telling a couple of stories to do that, well, then just do it. You know, don't think that you have to have three points or five presbyterian you know stick pens i feel like i do that i do that some weeks better than others but it's a thought that i try to come back to and and i don't i don't always do it i, I don't always do it well but i it's it's a move that i want to make more more fully because i think on the other hand some of what us preachers do too often is we we make a, a poor 30-minute sermon out of a good 12-minute sermon <laughs> exactly i mean i don't know how many times I have gone to people I respect, I like, and I said, you know, that was a really good sermon. And you should have stopped at minute 12 yeah. because you, you said a line then. And I thought, stop there, stop there. That's, that's it. That's it. That's, we'll take that with us the whole next week if you stop there. But then it won't be worth people's time to, to come. They've, they've got to get their money's worth to come. To I know they've got to have at least, at least eight more minutes. Yeah, I'm that's the thing. To produce a 30-minute sermon, so I better I better get 30 minutes out of it. I know. So anyway, I don't this know how many cheap. times I have actually gone up to my friends after and say, you know, that was a great sermon that should have ended eight minutes earlier than that. 
Mm. And then it been it would have been really great. Now it's mediocre. <laughs> well, in that spirit, we better wrap up this. We'll wrap up this podcast there then. So we've okay. got more than 12 minutes. So. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I do appreciate it. But so we typically close out our podcast in a prayer. So Jason, <laughs> you've been a quieter participant in this one than in most of ours. So Jason, you want to close us out today in prayer? I would, I would be glad to. Um, Holy Father, we are thankful for the messages that you give us, both written, unwritten, seen, and unseen. I ask that you open our eyes, open our hearts, and that we may have the presence of mind and the presence of spirit. We glorify you, we glorify your creation, and all in it. And it's in your Son's holy and blessed name we pray. Amen.